This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. A story that we are continuing to keep a watch on, more than three quarters of gasoline stations in some southern U.S. cities have run out of gasoline as a massive pipeline shutdown stretches into a fifth day, Tim. We know this is what's going on. We talked about how people down south are now coming to New York and Pennsylvania to get some gasoline. Well, let's now go to Dr. Ellen Wald, president at Transversal Consulting, also a Bloomberg Opinion contributor. She joins us on the phone from Jacksonville, Florida. Dr. Wald, thanks for for joining us on this. Um, What do you make of the panic buying that's happening right now? I think it's exactly what it is, is is panic buying. People are hearing stories about this. Some um, gasoline stations start to run low on gasoline. People see it. Then they go out. Then they buy more. They also do things like fill up their tank when they don't really need gasoline because they're concerned that in the future they won't be able to buy it. So it's almost like we're shifting storage from the uh, regional tank farms Hmm. to people's cars. Oh, wow. It's a great point. Yeah. So this isn't... The gas crisis of the 1970s or the spike we saw in 2011-2012, correct? No, there's plenty of gasoline. In fact, um, the uh, energy secretary said that at the, the White House press conference uh, yesterday, she said, we're not in a gasoline shortage. We have plenty of gasoline. The problem is that it just can't get where it needs to go because this pipeline is offline. And she also said, rightly so, that pipes are the best, the most efficient, the safest way to transport gasoline and other kinds of fuel. So even if the pipeline is out and we start to put this stuff into to trucks and truck it up, you know, along the, the pipeline route, it's still going to take longer. What's a realistic way for us to think about when we're going to be on the other side of this particular crisis? Well, it does depend on when they get this pipeline restarted. They have some portions have been restarted. They believe that they will be able to restart it by um, the end of the week, although I think we're supposed to hear at the end of today whether they believe they'll be able to keep that uh, that that timeline. So uh, the, the best thing is, is to get it restarted. Now, of course, it's going to take some time for the, the gasoline and the diesel to get from Houston, where the pipe uh, starts all the way up, uh, you know, through throughout the pipeline. So it could take as much as two weeks to get to, uh, you know, New Jersey. And then, of course, you've got to you've got to truck it to uh, the, the gasoline station. So um, we're also seeing though that there are six tankers that have left Rotterdam on their way to New York Harbor that should uh, arrive in ten days. So um, you know, we are trying to work around this issue. There are definitely that are being trucked uh, around, but it's just going to take a little bit of time to alleviate the bottleneck. All right. So I love in the notes that you shared with us, because Tim and I were talking about this offline. I understand it's an energy story, but it does sound like it's transitory. Thank you very much, uh, Fed, for giving us that word. But you say the issue should be a wake-up call for cybersecurity for the entire energy infrastructure ecosystem, uh, you know, because pipelines are important. As you say, it's the best way, safest way, uh, at least that's what the energy secretary was reminding us, of getting fuels around the country. But cybersecurity, like, I feel like that's one of the stories we've touched on, but we've really got to be focusing on. Yeah, and, and we've had incidents at 
say, um, power plants and with utility companies before, but I think that this should really um, bring home the fact that there's more to energy infrastructure than the grid. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of talk about the grid or, or how cyber uh, terrorists could sabotage the grid, but there's a lot more to it than that, and pipelines are one of those those issues. And we normally think a pipeline could get taken offline, say, in 2017. Uh, Colonial Pipeline was actually knocked off uh, for some time because of flooding. But this kind of, you know, cyber issues are always evolving. And I think that we really do need to be aware and to have not just plans to deal with cyber threats uh, to our pipelines and all parts of our energy infrastructure, but also backup plans so that if an incident happens, things can, you know, that we have a plan in place to say, here's how we're going to get the fuel from point A to point B in the event that this happens, so that that can be implemented smoothly. What does that look like? I mean, that's not a completely additional pipeline or trucks that are always sort of on call, right? Well, not necessarily, but at least if you have kind of the steps in place, so there is another pipeline that runs along almost the same route for part of it called Plantation Pipeline, and, and that pipeline is being, uh, you know, reworked in some ways to help get more fuel. But if you can have, you know, if everyone knows what they're supposed to do in this incident, then it can be easier to alleviate some of the issues. So, for example, the Jones Act, um, that allows, uh, basically the Jones Act forbids ships that aren't flagged in the U.S. from delivering fuel from one U.S. port to another U.S. port. That can be waived. Right now, they're still considering waiving it on a case-by-case basis, but it could have been waived completely, and we could have had ships bringing fuel from Houston to other ports. Uh, you know, that weren't U.S. flagged. That might have been a more efficient process. But as you remind us, and relevant to the broader infrastructure talks that certainly the president is trying to have in, uh, to have at this point when it comes to fuel infrastructure and how it can quickly, because of a cyber attack, you know, be impacted and impact a lot uh, of the country. Hey, Ellen, one thing I wanted to ask you, what are the longer-term energy stories that you think our audience, that investors need to be focusing on right now? Well, I think in in terms of the longer-term effects from this, um, it happened at a time when people are really gearing up for the summer driving season, and so it's possible that we're we're seeing higher gasoline prices now. We weren't expecting those until a bit later, but this incident could very well kind of bleed into summer uh, driving season, and it's possible that gasoline prices will end up being higher as a result of this. So that's something people should watch out for. Also, they should watch out for how this might affect refining, uh, and refining capacity, refining runs, because if refineries can't put these products right into the pipeline, they're going to back up and store up, and they may reach a point where they've got to slow their runs. We could see a buildup of crude oil as a result. Mm. Ellen, what about long term? I mean, do you, do you think that we will start to see some sort of uh, sustained higher uh, energy costs, higher gasoline costs? Well, not not necessarily as a result of this. I'm just saying, you know, we got the inflation data earlier today and, 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 you know, talking to our colleagues here, they said, keep an eye out for that. Absolutely. Inflation is absolutely going to affect this. Um, and we are likely to see higher energy costs, particularly because now we're in a position where our demand is picking up, but our domestic production, certainly of crude oil, is right. not picking up at nearly the rate that it needs to compensate. And so unless we're going to get that uh, crude oil elsewhere, we are very likely to see higher prices. Right, because prices have to go up a lot before maybe new supply starts to come back to the market. Hey, Ellen, thank you so much. Dr. Ellen Wall, president of Transversal Consulting, also a Bloomberg Opinion contributor. She also wrote the book Saudi Inc. on the history of Aramco and Saudi Arabia. 
This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. All right, you are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Carol Master, Tim Stenovic in our interactive broker studio. So the more infectious coronavirus variant uh, driving uh, a really tough uh, epidemic uh, of the virus in India has been detected now, Tim, in 44 countries as the Asian nation reported a record daily death count. Yeah, it's just some awful, awful news each and every day, though we could see deaths and uh, cases spiking, or cases, I should say, spiking. One model said that earlier this week. We'll have to wait and see if that's the case. Uh, Dr. Jacob Beecraft is co-founder and chief executive officer of Strand Therapeutics. He joins us now on the phone from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Jake, thanks so much for, for, for joining us. As you watch from Cambridge what's playing out around the world versus what's playing out here in the United States. How does it make you think differently uh, about us getting to the other side of this pandemic? What does that look like and when does it happen? I think, uh, so thank you guys for having me on again. I, I really appreciate the invitation. Um, I, I think that the most important thing that we need to be focused uh, solely on, well, well at least uh, uh, have our, our biggest piece of focus on is getting vaccines in the hands and in the arms, really, of more people, both in the United States and across the globe. Um, I think that right now it's still unsure how much protection the vaccines offer against some of these new variants. Uh, Some of the studies that have come out showed that even the so-called triple variant that has made its way through India, uh, that the vaccines uh, that are being deployed here in the United States are at least uh, mostly protective still uh, in that setting. And so it's most important that we get um, mRNA vaccines and, and really all vaccines that we have on hand uh, deployed across the country into, the, in, into developing nations as quickly as possible. So how do we do that as quickly as possible? Well, um, I can tell you one thing is that you, the, the Biden administration's uh, decision to, uh, to, to open up the mRNA patent vaccines um, in, in the way that they announced last week uh, was was probably um, you know just uh, maybe the heart in the right place, but uh, completely ill-advised. So uh, not even speaking from the perspective of the biotech industry. I mean, I, I'm not. But really says the biopharmaceutical really company. To be fair, right? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. To to be fair, I, I run a I run a, a biotech startup company actually focused in messenger RNAs. But um, the the fact of the matter is that this won't actually help with any of the accessibility problems that we're having with the vaccines. Um, I wrote an article last year published on online in Medium and then followed up with an article in Forbes uh, on, a, on a few angles uh, related to what the U.S. government and what the world government, the WHO and the U.N., could have been doing to shore up our national and international vaccine capacity manufacturing. Um, none of that was heeded. We reached out to my company and, and myself reached out to international governments. We reached out to Congress. No one wanted to hear about vaccine manufacturing back last July. Um, and so where we're at now is that the government wants to say that they'll open up the patents. But the issue here is um, the best analogy I can think of is, you know, if uh, mRNA vaccines are so uh, they're so new, they're so nuanced in how we make messenger RNA technologies that a lot of value of the company is really wrapped up in the, the individual techniques that they use that aren't public knowledge. They're not inside of those patents. And so the best analogy is really, you know, if you had Gordon Ramsay's shopping list, if you had the exact you know, amount of each ingredient that he used in a dish, do you think that you could make like a, a souffle at the level that Gordon Ramsay is? And the answer is, of course, no. You know, there are techniques, there are arts of the trade, there are things that just aren't in that recipe. So you say it's a safety issue, not a money issue, or is it a little bit of both? 
I, I think it's more uh, an efficacy. It, it could be an efficacy issue. It could be a safety issue. I, I believe that, you know, they'll probably be able to make safe mRNA um, across the globe. Um, I don't know if they'll be able to make the same, right? It won't be the same. It won't be as efficacious. And the reason that it took us so long to get an approved vaccine here um, here in, in the United States even, or, or get a one that's emergency use authorized, is uh, because we took so long to study the, the safety and the efficacy of the vaccine. Well, yeah, and talk about that a little bit, because I think a lot of people think that that's, you know, nine months, a year uh, for development. But but how long ha- have these companies been working on the mRNA and how long have you been working on it? Uh, so I've been working on mRNA um, since the very beginning, actually. Back in uh, 2013, I came to MIT and did my, my PhD focused on mRNA technologies. Uh, Moderna was founded in, I think, around 20, uh, 2011. Um, and they've been working on it since then as well, right? And, and the field has been moving at an incredibly rapid pace. Um, you know, there's a, a lot of criticisms for Moderna not having a, you know, now having an authorized uh, vaccine. Um, when they hadn't had a, a approved drug before, but that's actually pretty common in the biotech industry. You are a biopharma company, and so while you don't do vaccines, you know, you guys do work on a lot of different medications, but a patent, you know, I know the pharmaceutical argument, right? There's a lot of R&D, there's a lot of time that goes into it, that's part of it, but you also talked about efficacy when it comes to maybe waiving these patents potentially for COVID-19 vaccines. Is that really, really a concern? Uh, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I just don't know that uh, it, these aren't the sorts of things that just because the patents are waived that, uh, you know, a, a manufacturing site kind of set up in another country or set up in another place is going to be able to really start cranking out uh, cranking out COVID vaccines, at least not ones that are, you know, identical um, in their behavior. Uh, to, to the ones that we've already approved. I mean, people have already noted just, just between two companies that know how to make mRNA vaccines and have spent 10 years developing that technology, there are differences between the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines. People, you know, report different sorts of side effects um, after, after taking them, however mild those might be. And now, you, now you're going to throw that in the, in the realm of kind of open sourcing the, the manufacturing of those vaccines. I just don't believe that it's an effective way for us to get more vaccinations. What we should have been doing last year was building out a manufacturing distribution network both across the country and across the globe mm-hmm. um, and supporting those sorts of investments. Uh-huh. But we didn't. We sat on, we sat on our hands, um, and now we're having to pay for that. And so we need, to, we need to focus on solutions that are going to get more vaccines out. We need to focus on uh, you know, building more infrastructure and, and hopefully incentivizing companies like BioNTech and Moderna uh, and, and Pfizer to distribute their manufacturing technology in a way that is, you know, fair and equitable to those companies as well, making sure that we can increase the amount of vaccines that get out across this country and put this pandemic behind us. Hey, Jake, the um, mRNA vaccines against COVID are the ones that that get all the attention when it comes to mRNA technology, but you're not necessarily working on that type of application of mRNA technology. What are what are you working on? And and what's a what's a way that we can think about the actual hope of mRNA technology and to what extent has it been sped up because of the pandemic? It, it's been unbelievably sped up. Um, I would say that uh, one one uh, investor in our company um, who's a past pharmaceutical in- executive sat me down and said, just so you know, every pharmaceutical company's boardroom across this country is talking about mRNA right now. I would say almost every company has reached out to us to, to talk directly about um, what our mRNA technology can do. Um, so you're, you're correct. We're not focused on vaccines. The, the technology that we developed at MIT and 
use to launch strand therapeutics is um, useful to actually bring mRNA beyond uh, vaccines, um, actually make them safer and more effective um, to be used in, in, uh, in therapies like cancer therapeutics, to be used in areas like Parkinson's, uh, to be used in uh, different sorts of new therapeutic modalities that we haven't even begun to, to think of yet. We do that by uh, leveraging, you know, e- even newer technologies, incorporating things like synthetic biology and being able to build, you know, build a build a messenger RNA that can go into the body. And instead of protecting you against COVID, it goes into one of a, a tumor in your body and it actually creates uh, creates an environment that causes that tumor to completely kill itself. Yeah, which is pretty um, wild. This is like yeah. teaching the body to kind of fight, right, things like cancer. Absolutely, yeah. Teaching the body to fight things like cancer, teaching the body not to fight certain things. So in the case of mm-hmm. autoimmune disease, you have the body fighting, you know, your own uh, your own cells, teaching the body not to do that. But what, that, what it requires is it requires um, what we actually call uh, smart RNA. The RNAs that can, um, you know, that, that are only active when they, when they reach uh, diseased tissue, for instance. That sort of technology is necessary to bring mRNA forward. Uh, but the underlying thesis of messenger RNA as a, as a, as a therapy um, is just that we can very rapidly, um, you know, they say that the COVID vaccine was made in 63 days. That's the sort of timeline that we're talking about being able to make drugs. Instead of multiple years, we can make, now we can make cancer drugs with that time scale. We can make, uh, you know, all sorts of new drugs. We could even in the future make, you know, have someone be treated with a drug. The doctor kind of sees how that patient responds and be able to then quickly iterate and form a new version of the drug, administer that back to patients. Um, the, the time scales that we're going to see uh, enabled by messenger RNA technologies in medicine are going to be phenomenal. And that sort of a future mm-hmm. is going to be enabled by both what, you know, Strand Therapeutics, my company, is, as well as some of the other players right. in the space are doing. Hey, Jake, what does it mean for your company? Does it mean that, that you guys would potentially tap the public markets, go, go public? As Carol mentioned, you're still privately held. A lot of SPACs looking for properties right yeah, now. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> There's... Uh, uh, there, there's a, a number of interesting opportunities out there on the horizon. I think right now we're mostly focused on uh, developing good science and getting more drugs into the into the bodies of patients to to provide value. Um, you know, to, that's our end goal, right? Our end goal is to help patients. Um, however, we finance that. I would say that uh, in the last year, right. uh, it has uh, the market has definitely opened up a lot for us. All right. Uh, Stay tuned. It sounds like Dr. Uh, Jake B. Kraft, co-founder, chief executive officer at Strand Therapeutics, privately held Strand Therapeutics on the phone from Cambridge, Massachusetts. You know, but it is interesting in terms of this messenger RNA, what further applications will be uh, coming down the road? Yeah. I mean, silver lining to the pandemic, right? Mm, I hope. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) It feels that way. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week right here on Bloomberg Radio. I'm driving in my car. I'll turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. 
Yes, indeed, folks. Just about 19 minutes left in today's trading session. We are hovering near our lows of the session. Uh, Doug, of course, giving you those numbers a little bit earlier. Down about 2.6% on the NASDAQ. Dow Jones Industrial Average down just shy of 1.9%. S&P down 2% as well. And we do know tech kind of leading the way. Uh, concerns about inflation. So let's see what our guest has to say. Time for the drive to the close. Let's bring in Sarah Malik, Chief Investment of Global Officer of Global Equities at Nuveen. She joins us on the phone from San Francisco. Nuveen oversees approximately $429 billion in assets under management. Uh, Sarah, what do you think? Uh, transitory? Not transitory? The market's saying it's not. You know, our view is that investors need to brace themselves, and it's going to be a short, sharp spike in inflation. So we do view it as transitory. You know, there's a few reasons why. First, just looking at the CPI increase today, it is a big number, but it's pretty distorted because last year at this time, we had lower energy prices and we had the impact from industries which had closed over a year ago. And combine that with stimulus and pressures from the economy's reopening, and you're going to see this big increase. You know, also interesting, used car prices were a big element of this number going up almost 10% recently. So there's all these anomalies, right. um, higher air for hotel rates that are pushing up this number just for the short period. So the, are, the, are used cars, is that tied more toward a reflationary trade here, a reflationary element, the economy opening up? Or is it tied more to chip shortage and the fact that newer cars may be harder to come by because of the lack of chips or a little bit of both? I think it's a little bit of both. You know, chip shortages are definitely impacting uh, new car manufacturing, that's going to be an issue for a while. But also it's just people going back to traveling, uh, more private automobile travel. And all of that combined, yeah, I think it will continue to surprise investors on the upside and cause volatility for the market. And until we get clear data points on inflation starting to level out, and that will likely take a few months, the markets are going to be volatile and probably somewhat in this defensive mode until we can put that inflation scare behind us. Right, Sarah. I mean, how much of what's happening is what we expected, an economic recovery, lots of stimulus. We expected just as the economy fell off a cliff one year ago, or a little bit more than one year ago, you know, it is bouncing back with a vengeance. And you understand it's very clear why this has happened. You talk about it's going to take a few months before we know whether or not this is indeed transitory or something more significant. How long? What's your timeline? When do you say, what's the data point or or series of data points that you say, okay, this is something different? So what's, I think what's unexpected here is the magnitude of the quick recovery and the spike in inflation, and that is what's worrying in, in investors. You know, two things that we're watching is, one, will the Fed be able to resist tighter policy given this higher short-term inflation bump? So far, the answer from them has been yes, but we need to keep watching that. And second is going to be labor markets. Now, true broad wage inflation will be an mm. issue for long-term broader inflation. We saw the jobs number, payroll numbers on Friday. They were not strong. We think that was supply-driven rather than demand-driven. But a big pickup pick, pick in employment and wage inflation broadly, I think, would then say this is no longer transitory. It is a long-term 
higher inflation issue. But that's more structural. Like I, we had a, uh, some smart conversations with our Carl Riccadonna uh, of Bloomberg Economics and Bloomberg Intelligence. And I mean, that would mean a change in our system. We know increasingly over the past few decades that workers don't have much leverage when it comes to negotiating higher pay. And yes, we might be seeing it now, and we've heard it from CEOs in their earnings reports. But I mean, longer term, do you anticipate that structurally something has changed with you know, wage pressure and the ability of workers to really demand higher wages? Because it really hasn't been that way for the last decade. We don't see that as being a structural issue, which is why we are landing in the transitory camp Mm -hmm. when it comes to inflation, short, short, sharp spike, um, but not a consistent rise. Um, We think there will be wage pressure, though, in certain industries that are reopening quickly, like in services and hospitality. All right. So how do you invest in this market? Like, do you look at some of the tech names that are getting beaten up at this point and you say, okay, they're a little bit cheaper. They're a lot cheaper than they were a few weeks ago. Is that opportunities? How do you invest in this environment? I mean, we're finding opportunities today. Of course, it's a lot about defense. We don't think that's going to be sustainable because we do think we'll start to move past this. And the opportunities are both on the growth and value side. Um, If you look at growth stocks, the structural winners, such as digital companies, and in the value category, quality value. So we like areas such as in the consumer space where the reopening should really pull forward demand and financials where these higher yields should be positive for them. So we're finding opportunities across the board. While there might be some more downside in technology, we do think that that is an interesting area to start um, picking your names that are on sale. What kind of downside in technology are we talking here? I mean, I think we're getting, we haven't really seen complete capitulation yet. So probably more downside pressure as people are nervous about inflation. I think that's not only technology, which is heavily owned, but also in the in the cyclical side now, um, as people are moving to more defense. So, you know, a, a lower, um, more of a consistent inflation number, I think would make the market happy. Maybe communication from the Fed will, will start to get investors to feel a little bit more positive. Well, um, but until then, I think you're a bit catching a falling knife with technology at this point. Huh. What, what else could the Fed say, though, to, to kind of ease investors' fears right now? I mean, we were joking earlier today that the word transitory has essentially become this drinking game, but we hear it over and over again from Fed officials. I think it's consistent communication from the Fed. They have to just be consistent talking about inflation being something that they can be patient with, perhaps talking about these short-term drivers of inflation and how you know those are going to happen for a period of months but not be, be consistent. And hearing more and transparent com- uh, communication from them I think will help the markets calm their fears. So the NASDAQ 100, um, Sarah, is down about almost 7%, 6.8% to be exact, from the April 29th high. And that really was kind of a metric for a lot of the big tech names. Would you say that 10% would be more likely before you'd start maybe looking at some of these names? Or are you anticipating that that falling knife, the tech falling knife, is going to go even deeper? And I would say once we get to about the 10% level, it becomes broadly interesting. Mm-hmm. But also for us, it's you know some of these higher quality, large cap technology companies already start to look good, like an alphabet where they have strong digital trends, advertising trends, not too expensive. So this is the large liquid technology companies is somewhere we'd already be looking. And then more broadly, you know, the NASDAQ could recover after prob- a few more percentage point drops. What about just thinking of, year end here. I mean, here we are at a point where we're, we're only five months into the year, but what's a realistic way for, for us to think about how you're thinking, and I don't, not necessarily long term, but for the rest of 2021? I mean, what, what do you see markets doing? 
Well, we came out at the beginning of this year with, with a mildly bullish outlook and an S&P target of about 4050 So we have been moving into that trading range type of view recently after earnings were so strong. We see earnings growth peaking in the second quarter, and the market's going to have to get over that in, inflection point. But it is going to be more challenging from here for the markets to move uh, a lot higher, especially as we go through inflation. So we could see you know, definitely a trading range or even some downside over the summer and then picking up from there as, as people start to calm down about the inflation risk. Well, sorry, what was your what was your year-end target for the S&P this year? 4,050. And we're at 4,068 right now. Yeah, so we think, you know, a lot of the upside has been priced in for this year, but if we did get somewhat of a correction, uh, you know, going forward as people worry about inflation, then I think we could reset that bar, right. uh, get earnings growth going forward, and that'll drive the market higher again. Sarah, you can invest around the globe. Which are the most interesting global opportunities right now? You know, we're, in, we're warming up on emerging markets. We've been long-term fans, but we're concerned about the unfortunate um, you know, inability to roll out the vaccines as fast as possible. We do think that they will catch up in that strong structural growth story, particularly in areas that have lagged like Latin America, Brazil. Um, that could be interesting because they are cheaper markets. Uh, other areas that we like are China. We don't think China is too expensive given their growth rates. And within the U.S., uh, we're looking selectively at areas that have a lot of tailwinds like consumer stocks, uh, we mentioned financials and small caps, which would be levered to this reopening and inflation that we're seeing. Small caps in the U.S. or globally? In the U.S. Yeah, because they've been, I mean, they were on just such a tear. We've seen, you know, maybe a little bit uh, of some movement in terms of uh, a pullback as of late. But you you consider that as the economy reopens, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, if you look at small caps, you know, they're at almost two decade lows in terms of valuations. But of course, we need a catalyst to go along with a valuation story. And higher inflation, higher yield, and the reopening should be the catalyst to get small cap valuations to somewhat catch up um, and revert to the mean. Hey, I want to go back to last week and the economic data that we got on Friday, the jobs report. You said it was more of a supply issue than a demand issue. Um, but, but did that catch you off guard the same way that it caught economists off guard who were expecting a million jobs? I mean, definitely. We were more in the camp that it would be a strong payroll market going into the summer, starting with last Friday. You know, I think when the number came in uh, much lower than even we expected, uh, you know, we do look at it. It was not a demand issue. If it was a demand issue, we would have been much more concerned, more just of an issue of, you know, supply, logistically, these businesses uh, reopening, getting people back to work. Uh, it's more of a blip for us and growing pains than a long-term issue in terms of uh, sign of poor economic growth. What's the role of fixed income in a portfolio right now? I mean, I think, you know, diversification is always important. And, um, you know, in a higher rate environment, we need to be, uh, you know, more selective in fixed income. But, you know, what we're finding areas of attractiveness, um, emerging markets, again, from a fixed income point of view, with a flat to weaker dollar, which we expect going forward, we think that that would be an interesting area for investors to look at um, with somewhat higher returns. What are the questions that investors are having for you right now? Like when, when they come to you and, and clients come to you and they ask, they ask you, you they, they come to you with questions. What are their questions about? Are they about reopening? Are the, they concerns about what Carol, Carol asked about really bond fixed income, really doing nothing except for diversification? What are they asking? And most people have been concerned about the market valuations. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they're at a premium. You know, can we get enough earnings growth? 
to offset those valuations? Or, you know, have we already gone through from the bottom? You know, is this bull market basically over? Uh, you know, our view is that it's not. It's not going to be the types of returns that, easy, that we've seen in the last year. The easy money has been made. It's going to get more challenging from here. But we don't see the bull market as being over. Um, we don't see inflation as being the cause of why it would end. Um, and I think people are also worried about these new variants of COVID-19. You know, could that actually um, do increasing damage and slow down this recovery, which would be another issue? Uh, you know, I think that's a risk that's out there, too, that hopefully will not come to fruition. Sarah, I think that is a risk that we are not necessarily focusing on enough. It's interesting. We talked with uh, a Dr. Hazeltine. Uh, Human Genome Sciences was a company he created. He is at the forefront of this, understands it. But we talked about variants, potentially, and just this whole idea of we're going to all probably need boosters. And we're certainly hearing that from the big pharma companies who've created the COVID-19 vaccines and that we've got to kind of start thinking that way and that if we don't kind of have that vaccine infrastructure continue to be in place to kind of get the next round of shots that that could create another wave and potentially you know could we see another shutdown how much of that do you folks at Nuveen talk about that I mean it's definitely an important topic that we've been discussing our view is that COVID-19 is here to stay so it's going to be an ongoing issue that we have to deal with as you mentioned with booster shots and the question is can those booster shots get here fast enough to fight right. the constantly evolving variants? And I think there is some risk of a shorter, shallower, uh, another wave of the virus going around, increasing to go around the world later this year. If it happened, I do think it would be, you know, like, as I mentioned, shallower, not mm-hmm. the severe shutdowns that we've seen, but it would definitely be something that hit the, that would cause the growth rate to hit, hit, up, hit the pause button. If that happens, what does the what does the Fed have left in its arsenal in order to, to, to help support the economy? I mean, I think you might see increasing stimulus. Um, they still have infra- infrastructure spending that we're talking about. They could maybe pull back on tax rate um, discussions. And so, you know, kind of accelerate the gas pedal on some of the things they've already done to support the economy and then pull back on some of the things that may be considered headwinds to earnings and to consumers. Um, in the meantime, I know we kind of started this way, but we do laugh about, you know, the use of transitory. And we do. We heard Rich Clarida, vice chairman of the Fed, use it. I mean, at this point, the Fed has been very transparent about that, that until we start to see something much more sustainable in terms of inflation, we should assume that the Fed is going to be in a very, very easy policy. Is that the assumption that you folks uh, at Nuveen make? It is our assumption. I think what is unnerving right now is that that spike, that transitory spike in inflation is becoming a bigger spike. And the question is, if the spike becomes big enough, is it does it eventually lead to longer term inflation? And that's kind of the numbers we're seeing today. They're coming in greater than maybe people expect. And, and what does that mean? And that's why the markets are behaving the way that they are. Mm. Hey, co- very briefly, Colonial Pipeline hack. Um, does that does that concern you at all? I think all of these things are, you know, ongoing macro risks and they're unexpected. They're very hard to predict or see coming. So, you know, I think usually they tend to be concerning over the short term, uh, not a long term impact on the markets. But it's just increasing issues that are making it very difficult to invest this year, not only because of market valuations, COVID-19, all these other things that happen to be going on that 
you know, are making it very challenging for how can you generate strong returns in a market that has being that's being whipsawed by unpredictable events. All right, Sarah, going to leave it there. Thank you so much. Really deep dive into the trade today and an important day when we did see a lot of pressure on the equity market. Sarah Malik is Chief Investment Officer of Global Equities at Nuveen. On the phone from San Francisco, they've got roughly $429 billion in assets under management. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.